Welcome to worship again at First Christian Church. I'm glad you're here. God's Word is going to be opened to us today by Jim Gilbert, who is no stranger to our congregation. We work in Cuba today because of Jim's ability to lead us to that nation and to say, you can come and you can go there and will you come with me? And we have people there this month as a result of Jim's work among us. We have children in our nursery today as a result of Jim's work among us. It was a number of years ago that he encouraged us and challenged us to think about, are there ways in which families could be used by God to reach our nation? And should we be, uh, if you will, staffing and growing our nursery areas and our children's space areas with not only more staff, but also more children? We have a growing ministry in that area, a burgeoning ministry in that area because of Jim's word among us. Those were God's thoughts for us in the past. I believe Jim is bringing more of God's thoughts for us today, and it's a pleasure to welcome him to the pulpit and to the ministry of First Christian Church. So it is a pleasure to uh, welcome Jim here today. For those of you in the East Auditorium and those of you here in the West Auditorium, we're going to be reading from Jeremiah chapter 29 today. And I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. And uh, if you're in the East Auditorium, there'll be people moving around the room right now with Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad if you'd take that home as our gift to you. Here in the West Auditorium, same thing, though we're not moving around the room in this place. They're actually in the pew rack in front of you. And Jim's going to be working significantly from Jeremiah 29 today, so I invite you to, um, to turn there very quickly, if you may. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jim and I go back many, many years to 1978 was the first time we met in Bath, England. Uh, and uh, he was a keyboard player. I was a keyboard player working with a band called Living Sound with that instrument right there, that one that you heard during communion. That was it. And uh, so it's, it's getting old, that thing, but it's working extremely well. And... Uh, uh, I trust you work as well in the pulpit today as that thing works. That's in better shape than you are. Would you welcome Jim to the pulpit today, please? Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for that nearly rousing round of applause. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, first, I'll, I just want to say congratulations to Sue Wayne and Leslie. He didn't. Can I tell him the baby's name? You didn't. You didn't actually say her name. It's Pippi. Her name's Pippi. She already has the little long. Anybody remember Pippi Longstocking? So she's never going to get older than five. She's going to stay five. I understand. So Pippi's on her way, and I, I won't spoil Ben's fun about the, the, the twin boys, but uh, they're on their way, obviously, too. So I'm, I'm just proud of, uh, proud of the Kent family for expanding. And uh, can I say, as a friend of this church, I'm also really proud of you. Um, I'm not trying to flatter you. I really mean it. I'm so glad that, uh, for one thing, that you're sending teams to Cuba. Um, and I, I, I'm still going there. I, I want to show you a photo of Pastor Emilio, who you've met, and me together. But I, guys, show them what I got. I, I couldn't find a photo of him and me. And so um, I have this, this photo. It's going to come, right? There, there we go. I figure the one way that you'll know I went to Cuba is the condition that that 1955 Chevy is in. Because um, it's full of old American cars. Now, it's running a Toyota diesel. Uh, that's, you'll find all kinds of spot wells inside of every old American car in Cuba. They're always having to switch out engines uh, to make those things last. But I'm still going, still going to Cuba, and in fact, should be there um, sometime this fall. I hope in early September. 
but we're still, um, we're still setting the dates for that. I like to go whenever we're needed rather than when we say we want to come. So I, I kind of leave that to our friends down there. Also had a chance this last year to go to Iraq. Guys, you can go ahead and just, yeah, pick now. That's that, I'm the one with hair. And then and I say that with, with some pride. I admit it. Um, now it'll all fall out. And then in the, mid, the, the guy in the middle with the tie, that's Dr. Terry Law. He and I um, went over there uh, a, a, right about a year ago. Um, to interview not only that man, that, that's the interior minister of, uh, of the Kurdish region of Iraq. The Kurds in Iraq are very brave people, and they are fighting ISIS on the front lines. They're the ones that are closest. They're, we, were only fit, we were about 40 miles from the front lines right there um, in, in that little palatial surrounding uh, at a government, a government building. But uh, the Kurds are like a nation within a nation, and they're very, very noble people. Uh, and we, we wanted to go there and, and interview him, as well as some other folks. In fact, you can go ahead and show them. Uh, I, I uh, was real proud to, to get to meet the leaders of a Christian battalion of the Kurdish. The Kurdish forces are called the Peshmerga. That's, that means those who face death. And uh, there's a Christian battalion amongst those folks. Uh, these, that man and about 30 others that we met were village elders all through a Christian region of Iraq, up way in the north, in the, what they call the Nineveh Plains. In the Bible, it's called Nineveh. Now it's called Mosul. It's the big city that, that, uh, that uh, ISIS took over. Uh, and we went to interview uh, as many people as we could, these and some others, uh, in order to, um, to produce a book um, and I have it with me this morning uh, called Unmasking ISIS. It's an overview of uh, that terror group. We were, I was looking at everything a year ago, looking at everything that I could find on ISIS and couldn't find something that was just a general overview. And so actually we thought we'll just write this ourselves. So if you want to know how, how they work, why they hate us, why they hate America in particular, how they're different from, from Al-Qaeda, how they get their money, how they recruit young people, um, all that kind of information, it's, it's in that book. Uh, we invested an enormous amount of time and a trip to Iraq to be able to write it. I also have with me another book called Storm Chaser. Dr. Law and I decided to, to start an organization called the Storm Chaser Foundation. And this book's actually his life story. You know, he lives in Oklahoma where all those tornado jockeys are that you see t- chasing tornadoes on Weather Channel late at night. Um, it occurred to me one day that that's exactly what he is. Doc, my, my mentor, Dr. Law, Wayne's worked with him as well, is the kind of guy that whatever everybody else is running from, he's running towards. He spent a lot of time in Afghanistan um, and in, uh, in Iraq many, many times, 30, 40 times. Al-Qaeda tried to kill him. He managed to affect the constitution, the new constitution of that country when they were, were adopting the new constitution. It's just a a really remarkable story um, in his life. It's not written like a biography, quite frankly. It's more like an adventure novel. So that's out there as well. One other thing I'll tell you about just because it's about to come out and I'm excited about it, and that's a course that is a worldview course that we very ingeniously named the worldview course. Um, <laughs> we live in an era where when you find worldview studies, usually you'll see a photo of George Washington kneeling in the snow by his horse, and you'll hear trumpet music and very patriotic things, and it's a very academic study. We didn't want to do that. My buddy, uh, Mark, who 
is he is an he bills himself as an entrepreneur. He is as geeky as he can be and very happy about it. And so he's the he's the 29 year old who's coding Russian czars and and the Desert Fathers. And I'm the <clears throat> some year old guy who can tell you one-liners from Seinfeld. So we work together and kind of produce this like a giant Apple commercial, but it's designed for church small groups. If you want to see more about it, it's at, at uh, worldviewcourse.com. So that's there. I want to talk with you this morning from Jeremiah. Now, the last three or four times I've been with you, I've either been stuck in Isaiah or Jeremiah, and, and I keep reaching for the button because I've fallen in and I can't get up. Um, I, I'd love those two books. Jeremiah is confusing to read because it jumps back and forth in time. What it is is it's kind of a collection of prison letters uh, that Jeremiah wrote while he was under house arrest under King Zedekiah. Um, but I told you one time earlier, I, I, I spoke to you from, uh, from, from Isaiah, a time uh, in I, when Isaiah when King Hezekiah um, had shown all of his state secrets, kind of bragging on God's blessing to Babylonian envoys. And, and the prophet Isaiah came to Hezekiah and he said, you shouldn't have done this. Now, because you've done it, God is, the, the Babylonians are going to come back, not during your lifetime, but the Babylonians are eventually going to come back and invade Jerusalem and take everything from us, everything that you showed them. It was very unwise of you to do this. Isaiah was a prophet, but sort of like a national security advisor to, to King Hezekiah. And almost 100 years later, exactly, that's what happened. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar dispatched the Assyrians um, who had conquered the northern kingdom and, and then he had conquered them and he sent them then the Babylonian and, and Assyrian troops down to Jerusalem and conquered Jerusalem. Now there was this teenager named Jeremiah and Jeremiah is about 17 years old. He's from a little village outside of Jerusalem and he's from a family of Levites, a family of, of priests, but they were disgraced priests. I don't know why, but he came from a from a, a rather scandalous background in terms of the priesthood. And here he is, 17 years old, with a word from God for the government. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and big surprise, nobody wants to listen to him. But it was mainly because of his message. His message was, God says that he's going to bring Babylon against Jerusalem. You can fight them, but you're not going to win, and they're going to take us away. And I'm telling you that so that perhaps you'll repent. Nobody wanted to listen to this wacky teenager, and so they refused to listen to him. For 23 years, Jeremiah attempted to speak to the people of the kingdom of Judah, the little southern part of Israel that was all that was left of the kingdom. And for 23 years, he was rejected. Not until it was too late were the people willing to listen to him. And in chapter 29, he speaks to them when they're finally ready to listen. You know where they were? They were in Babylon in exile when they finally decided that they would be willing to listen to what he had to say. Now, Jeremiah 29, 11 is part of his letter to Babylon. I want you to, to look at it where it's, he says, I know, the, how many of you know this? How many of you signed this on some high school graduate's graduation card, Right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you uh, hope and a future. Well, that's a wonderful verse. It sounds so, so thrilling. But you have to understand, he's saying, he's saying this in a context that says, this is what I've been trying to tell you for 23 years, and you weren't willing to listen. Why? Because it's point two of a message where point one was a real downer. 
And then he never got past point one. I feel that way sometimes when I'm preaching. He never got past point one because they didn't want to hear point two, even though it was this. Now, how could it be? Well, how did this future and hope begin for them? This is uh, pretty discouraging, I would say. First of all, the Babylonians invaded their hometown, killed people and broke things like armies do, and actually besieged Jerusalem for a three-year period. And eventually these people were exiled to, to Babylon. So they had lost their homes. They lost their livelihoods, their jobs. They lost the promised land itself. Do you understand? This was the land that God had promised to Abraham, and they had clung to this promise and clung to this promise. The promised land was everything to them. It, it, was, God, it was the sign of God's favor on them, and now they were torn out of it and exiled to Babylon. They lost everything, and finally they were ready to listen to him. Let me explain why their future and their hope began how would you like it if God said to you, I have a great plan for your future. I want to give you hope. So you're going to lose your home, you're going to lose your job, and you're going to have to move to Detroit. I'm picking that as a kind of Babylon, but sorry. <laughs> if you're from Detroit, then uh, we'll say uh, New York. Okay, so there's a movie called Escape from New York. I remember when I was a wee thing. So what do you do with a, with a, with a beginning like this? Why would he do that? If you're a gardener, I'm not unless you count weeds, but if you're a gardener and you, you want to grow beautiful flowers or good vegetables, you know there are times where the soil gets into such bad condition that you realize you're going to have to just tear the whole thing up and resoil it, replant it. But there are a few good plants. So what do you do? You pull up those few good plants and you transplant them, you pot them and put them somewhere else and then you just rip up the garden. That is what God was doing with Jerusalem. The people had not given the land its rest. They hadn't kept the Jubilee laws. They had not kept God's word. And as a result, everything was going wrong in that society. And it was beyond, it, it had passed the point of no return. Critical mass is what you'd call it, they had reached. And there were people worth saving but in order to save them, and in order to give them a future and a hope, God wanted to uproot them, put them aside, as it were, in his windowsill called Babylon, and then tear the whole thing up and let the land rest for 70 years. That's the reason. Now, why am I telling you this? Because we live in a time where just a few years ago, a crash hit the U.S. that was, people say it was pretty, it, it was different from the Great Depression, but it was no less a shock to the nation where good people lost their homes. People who had been diligent, had paid on time, etc. All of a sudden they lost jobs, they lost homes. I had friends who wanted to renegotiate mortgages and the mortgage companies would say to them, you have to miss three payments and then you can talk to us because that's the way the rules are set up on this bailout. And they didn't like missing payments. They, they wanted to make their payments, but they were in trouble. What were they going to do? There was all this ethical tension for all kinds of people. And good people suddenly found themselves unplugged from the system. Well, you see, there comes a time in a culture where if the system has become so corrupted that it's beyond repair, God will unplug his people from that system. It's not pleasant from an earthly point of view. But if you're looking down from heaven, you know you're giving them a future and a hope. I don't know what's happened to you in your life. I don't know if you lost a home. I don't know if you lost a job, one that you had had for a long time and thought you would have for a good long time. But I do know, as Pastor Wayne said, America is in trouble. And not only 
of the kind that we've seen this past week. We are Christians in America beginning to live in a system that's very comparable to a Babylonian system. Now, we'll say that the majority of Christians, or the majority of Americans claim to be Christians, but if you look at our institutions, they are run by, if you'll forgive the term, by Babylonians, by a Babylonian system. If you look at our political institutions, if you look at our political parties, if you look at our choices of candidates in many cases, I won't stop there, if you look... If you look at our economic system, if you look at our educational system, if you look at the press, if you look at entertainment, the entertainment industry, at social media, it's Babylonians in charge in terms of the worldview that people have adopted. It's very much an, a, a non-Christian, if not explicitly anti-Christian view that, that, is, that, that, is it, that is in charge. And there's beginning to be some open di- discrimination now against people for being Christians. What do you do when you're living in Babylon? After refusing to listen to Jeremiah for 23 years, finally, they were willing to listen. And in this letter, if you look in chapter 29 and you start at verse 5, that's where the quote from, or actually verse 4, is where the quote from (coughs) from Jeremiah begins. When the people were finally willing to listen to him, he says, here is the word of the Lord. And he told them to do four things. He said, I want you to build houses, make yourselves at home, put in gardens and eat what grows in that country, marry and have children, encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in that country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home there and work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for Babylon, things will go well for you. That's what they were supposed to do. It wasn't just that every time something bad, every time something bad happened, oh, come Lord Jesus. People are quoting Revelation 22 like crazy these days. Uh, Donald Trump's going to be your candidate. Oh, come Lord Jesus. No, Hillary Clinton's your other choice. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Then there's Bernie offering socialism. Oh, come Lord Jesus. I would kind of agree with that one. I think when you screw up capitalism so badly and offer people socialism, it's like it's, turning to that is like a starving man discovering poison mushrooms. It's not a good, it's not a good. Just remember Wayne's home phone number. It's, it's not a, we don't have a lot of good alternatives and people really are suffering. That's the sad thing. Folks are suffering all over the country. The system isn't fair because the system has become so corrupted. But another corrupt system, an even more corrupt system, is not an answer to this corrupt system. What do we do? We can't just sit back and say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. It's going to be a while. And we have to restore and we have to rebuild. You can't do that overnight. I'm all for sweeping revivals. But the fact is, you can't rebuild overnight. How many of you know it's easy to tear a house down? It takes a while to build one up. Sledgehammers, about all you need to tear one down. A couple of other things, in case there's gas and all that. But, you know, but, but it takes a long time and a lot of coordination to build one up. It's easier to be against things than it is to be for them. So what was Jeremiah saying to these people? He's giving them some principles. I don't want to twist these up in some cutesy way to form a message that I already had planned. I want you to see why this is in the scripture and what he's telling these people to do. The first thing he told them to do was to build houses and live in them. 
If you're going to be there 70 years, it's not wise to rent week to week at Extended Stay of America. Hope you don't work there. You know what I mean. I'll get myself in all kinds of trouble and hopefully leave town with the offering. But it's, it's not, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? You don't, want to, you, don't want, you don't want to have a renter's mentality when you're going to be somewhere 70 years. He's telling them, don't live hand to mouth. Don't live for week to week. You're going to be in this place for 70 years before God takes you back and gives you back your country. Listen, God can give America. God can restore America. He can restore us as a nation to better than we were because we had the glaring flaw, among others, of of slavery when we started. But God can restore this nation or any other nation. I have this radical doctrine I subscribe to that the gospel was designed to succeed. And I don't believe any nation on earth is too far past his grace because wherever sin abounds, grace abounds more. So I look forward to the future. But you have to have a long-term vision if you're going to really look forward to the future. And so in a, with a long-term vision, he's telling them, build houses and live in them. What, ha- what are you doing when you build a house? Well, if you build one properly, you don't just stick a, a flashlight in a refrigerator box and call it a house, which is the way sometimes p- churches are planted. You don't, you don't want to do that to somebody. What, and f- I'll tell you why I said that. A guy told me one time, I met him in Moscow and I'd heard of him. And he kind of puffed up a little bit, and he didn't mean to be doing this, but he just kind of puffed up. And he said, yeah, we planted 38 churches here last year. And I thought, how do you plant 38 churches in a single year? And I'm thinking, okay, I didn't know you could do churches in litters. And so I thought, okay, how long does it take to plant a church? So when I got back to the U.S., there's this one theologian I really, really respected a whole lot, and I'd read his books, and I thought, okay, I'm going I'm to figure out, I'm going to call that guy, because he has a real long-term view. And I got, a, I got a phone number, I called the number, and I thought, okay, I'm going to get his secretary, and she'll tell me to call back on so-and-so day or just to write to him. He answered, it was his home number somebody gave me. So he answers, he treats me like a king. I'm, he's just so gracious. And I said, Dr. Sutton, how long does it take to plant a church in your estimation? And he paused. He said, oh, 75 to 100 years. You have to get well into the third generation before you know whether it's going to stick. Well, that's quite a different view from 38 churches in one year. And I tend to lean towards him because I know if you're going to build something good, you're going to be more careful and it's going to take a while. He said, build houses and live in them. In other words, I want you to take ownership where you are. You may be, be living in Babylon. You might, you might be the only Christian where you work, but take, take ownership where you are and realize that God has put you there. Use your life to build something that's going to outlast you. In short, live for the next generation. The second thing that he told them, he said, I want you to plant gardens and feed yourselves. Now, it seems like a no-brainer in an agrarian society that you should plant a garden. What's he saying? Why is he telling them this? Why is he stating such an obvious principle to them? He said, build houses, plant gardens. In other words, literally put down roots and and be self-sufficient. He did not, God did not want his people to become dependent on a Babylonian system or on Babylonian welfare for their well-being. It is very important principle of the kingdom of God that you work towards self-sufficiency. Now, we live in a very interconnected world of specialized, uh, you know, of specialized occupations. And so if you're a, if you're a particular computer programmer who works in this kind, with this kind of computer, you're going to interact with other people. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to go plant my, uh, my garden of code 
and uh, try to grow C, and I'm no good at those kind of puns. But anyway, (laughs) you need other people. So it's, what does he mean, self-sufficiency? Can we all be self-employed? Not unless we want to buy gasoline from Pete down at the corner who's having to make it with Ma out back of his house. No, people have to work for other people, but we work towards being self-sufficient as much as possible. That is to say, we never let ourselves become so dependent upon a corrupt system that if it goes, we go with it. It's a very important principle for us to realize. He's saying to them, I want you to be self-sufficient. It's don't be so entangled with the world that you become someone of the world. You're in it, but you're not of it. Third thing he told them, oh, we could stay a while on this one. He said, keep getting married and making babies. And then, yeah, folks, I talk about this every, it doesn't matter what text I have in the Bible, I'm going to get to this point. And then he says, and when you babies get married, have them have more babies. Why is this? Why was God saying to them, I want you to keep getting married and having kids? Because it's a sign of your faith in the future. Low birth rates are a sign of no faith in the future or a sign of total preoccupation with the present, just pleasure-seeking. Babies complicate life too much. You just want to have fun. A big sign of their hope for the future was in their birth rates. And he's saying, I want you to be a people of hope. Keep getting married. Keep having babies. And then, because you're going to be there for 70 years, your children should get married. They should have children as well. He wanted them to be a people. He wanted them to be a cult. We're not just people. We're the people of God. He wanted them to be a distinct people within Babylon. He wanted them to be a culture within a culture. And I'm not talking ethnicity here. I'm talking about spiritual seed, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not saying that we totally disengage from society. That's not what he's talking about, that we don't get involved. In fact, you'll see that. What he's saying is my authority doesn't come from here. Look, I have a passport. My passport doesn't say where I'm going. It says where I'm from. We're from heaven. Why do we concentrate on going to heaven so often? Revelation Revelation 21 shows us inheriting the earth. And I can't figure, if if Jesus says you're inheriting the earth, why do we think you die and go to heaven forever? There's nothing in the Bible that says you go to heaven forever. Revelation 21 shows heaven coming to earth. You still get heaven, but you get earth too. This is an inheritance. And he's wanting us to think for the long term. So he says, I want you to keep, keep having babies, get them married, and have them have more babies. Now, Pastor Wayne made a very a nice compliment a while ago and talked about the fact, I remember this, about the fact that I had really exhorted you. In fact, I prayed for you. It was about 10 years ago, the year that the tornado broke up the baptism, Sunday evening baptism service. I don't know if you remember that, but I do. And... I mean, it didn't come through here. That's not why you redecorated. But there was a tornado in the area, and we all had to take cover and, you know, find shelter and all that kind of thing. And where am I going with this? Oh, my goodness. So I had said to you that morning at the end of my message, I prayed for you. and And I felt this urge in my heart to pray this prayer. I prayed, Lord, let the day come when the nursery has more babies in it than this room has people happy to say, 10 years on, you're well on your way. It's been an expensive trip, but you're well on your way. But keep it up. Just do me a favor. Now, Wayne said to me when I got in, he said, you know, it's your fault. Listen, 
It's the most embarrassing thing for a traveling speaker to be, I'm standing at my book table later. It's an embarrassing thing for a traveling speaker to be standing at a book table or down front greeting people and a woman walk up with a little baby and say, this is your fault. (laughs) And it's happened to me several times. And if my wife's not there, because I often will travel alone, I immediately go, oh, where's your husband? Because there's people standing right here going like that, looking, so don't do that. But, but keep having those kids, okay? I'll exhort you, keep having those children. The fourth thing he told them, he said, I want you to get involved in this city. In fact, here's the, the, the English standard, most of the other translations I read to you from the message. He says, and you can look at it, it's at verse 7. He says, to be involved in seeking the welfare of the city wherein I have exiled you. You hear that? God said, this is the city in Babylon. You're living in a Babylonian Babylonian city? Don't blame it on the devil. Wherein I have exiled you, the Lord said. You're there by appointment. Where you work, you're there by appointment. Where you live, the house you live, you're there by appointment. If you look at this from God's perspective, he has planted you where you work and where you live and where you play and where you stop for gas. He has appointed those those circumstances the way they are because Christ lives in you. When the office cynic walks past your desk, the office cynic is walking about two feet, coming within about two feet of Christ in you, the answer to every prayer he's ever prayed, the healing for every disappointment, the fulfillment of every dream, because you work there. So don't be praying those kind of wimpy prayers. Oh, Lord, please get me a job where I'll have some more fellowship. Make it. Don't be a thermometer. Be a thermostat. Change the atmosphere. I hope that makes sense, because they don't get any better than that. So. I can't make it any more dramatic than that. I'm sorry, unless I tap dance, and you don't want to see that. But he says, I want you to get involved in the city. And he means at every level. Seek the welfare of that city. That means not only voting. It means running for office. It means getting involved in the economy of the Babylonian city. Not becoming dependent upon it. But getting involved in its welfare, this, I'm so proud of something you guys did. My wife emailed me yesterday. She said, this, she said, here's something from First Christian's newsletter. We get your newsletter. She said, here's something from First Christian's newsletter back in uh, 2014. God has placed you in a unique situation where you're called to extend love to those in your neighborhood. We've asked you to pray for your neighbors and learn their names. Now we encourage you to take the next step and begin building friendships. And then in this newsletter, you talk about coffee, neighborhood barbecues. The church will help you, help you host special events in your neighborhood, help you televise Super Bowl parties, or help you to to host Super Bowl parties, get involved in neighborhood cleanups, neighborhood, neighborhood projects. You as a church have been excelling at what I'm talking about here, and, and, I, and I want to compliment you on that, and at the same time, just say to you, if, to quote someone named Jimmy Durante, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's actually very biblical. I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has planned for you. You're just beginning. Don't let yourself become a beautiful resource to the city and then think, okay, we're doing enough. Never, ever, ever measure what you do by what is enough. Don't ever say, am I doing enough to be a part of this church? Am I doing enough for 
my neighborhood. And I don't, it's not that you're always feeling like a debtor, but you never want to settle for enough when you have a God who's the God of abundance. You always want to go ahead and just say, okay, the limit may be well higher than what we think of so far. That's what he's saying to them. Here they are in Babylon, and essentially, God is saying to them, seek the welfare of the city. In other words, hey, you know that Babylonian guy down the street? Invite him up to your house for supper. Go ahead, watch the old Babylonian Super Bowl together at your house. That's what he's wanting from us. So God God had given them this wonderful, simple strategy. It's not some scientific approach to evangelism, unless you count having babies as scientific and make a dinner as scientific, planting a garden as scientific. It's not some sophisticated strategy. He's just saying to them, build something that's going to outlast you. Build a house that you can pass on to your kids. Have a ministry that outlives yourself. Plant the gardens. Be self-sufficient. Raise your children to be the same way and have them raise their children to be the same way. He's always looking a couple of generations ahead when he talks to his people. And then wherever you are, seek the welfare of that place because your, your welfare, if it goes well with where you are, regardless of how bad it looks, then it's going to go well for you. That's what he's telling them. I want to pray for you. No, I want, you know what? Let me, I, I, I'm almost forgetting here. Let's put that verse back in context. Remember that verse that says, I have plans for you to give you a future and a hope. If you look at the context of it, he says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, this is verse 10, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I'll visit you. And I'll fulfill to you my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not evil. To give you hope and to give you a future. That's the context. So however your life has gone the last few years. Understand that God has a future and a hope for you. To prosper you. To make you to be a person in good health. For the sake of his kingdom in this earth, he has put you here. You're here for such a time as this. Father, thank you so much for these lovely folks. I pray that whatever we've spoken from your word today will take root in their hearts and that it'll grow to produce good fruit. Whatever's not from you, let them forget it quickly. They don't need a word from Florida, but we do need a word from heaven because we want your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.